a rosebud for Bryson Emmett Kohlberg, the newborn son of John and Valen Kohlberg. So we give thanks for that. And I also want to reiterate, if you uh, came in late, I wanted to reiterate the um, missions conference, which is coming up Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, the potluck dinner, and Sunday morning. It's, uh, it's kind of, if you're new to Mitchell Road, it's kind of the bread and butter of Mitchell Road. It's been so formative for this church over the years, and it's so helpful uh, to take a step back and to look at the nations and to look at the world and to look at what God's doing outside of Greenville and outside our little myopic worldview that we typically just think of with us in our neighborhood and our workplace. This year we'll be focusing on Belgium. Uh, so you can do some research on that. We'll have missionaries here from Belgium and many others from around the world, and it's just a great time. So let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, I pray now for um, all of our missionaries, that you would guide them and direct them, especially the ones we pray for in uh, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Russia, Poland, Turkey, those surrounding that area, which is in incredible turmoil right now, give them great opportunity to share a cold cup of water or a Bible or hope or encouragement. Father, we pray for um, those who are in places where they've been isolated for so long. Uh, We pray that you would give them freedom from loneliness and despair. And Father, as we uh, focus back on our our lives and our homes. We can think about the days that we didn't know you, the days that we had no understanding of your saving grace, that there's a God who's sovereign and gracious to us. We can remember like um, the Israelites say when we weeped uh, by the shores of Babylon. But you've put our feet on a rock. You've put a new song in our mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And so we want to be a people that worship you. We want to be people that love you. We want to be people that encourage one another. I pray, Father, for this church in particular, that we would be great at encouraging one another and welcoming people because you have welcomed us, as it says in Romans 15. You're the God who has come to us and has brought us in so that we might know you. And so, Father, we pray that we would do the same for others. So thankful to travel and journey and sojourner with these uh, individuals in this church. So whether we're rejoicing right now or weeping, wherever we are in our relationship with you, we pray that this day would be given to, to worshiping and to loving you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, I give you uh, greetings uh, from the places I've been. North Carolina was there for a week or so. And then uh, Illinois uh, was there preaching for a little while, Grace Church in Illinois. When I got off the plane, it was minus five. And I thought, why did I come here? What, am I, what is happening? And then uh, a little bit in Duke, and then after that, a little bit in uh, Clemson Prez. Great PCA churches all around, and they send their greetings. They know, they watch you, and uh, sometimes observe what Mitchell Road does, and we observe what they do. And so greetings to them. Now, as we turn to um, Exodus chapter 32, let's make the first point, which is this, that revelation can be really scary. 
if you're reading through the Bible with us, which we've been doing, some of the things that you're seeing and experience can, can be very scary in Genesis and in Exodus. We see all these giants. We see these angels. We see these demons. We see God doing all these things with people. And Revelation is scary. You know, it's scary when your parents say, hey, we need to have a family meeting. That always wigs my kids out. They're always like, what's going to happen? Is this good or bad? Are we going to Disney World or does somebody have cancer? You know, they, can't, they don't know what's happening. It's scary when your lover says to you, we need to have a talk. It's scary when the doctor says to you, I've got your results. It's scary when your boss says to you, it's time for your yearly review. Like revelation, people revealing things to you are fundamentally, it's a scary thing that happens. And here in the scripture, we've seen a lot of scary things. It's God, a transcendent God, who is not of this world, but made this world, communicating to us who he is. And I know a lot of you maybe are confused already. Uh, but as we journey through this together, uh, we're not going to hide from Scripture. We're going to engage in it. You're going to have questions about it, and that's okay, and that's good. Now, as we come to this text, we come to this famous text of the golden calf. And let me read uh, 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together with Aaron and said to them, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf, and they've worshipped it, and they sacrificed to it. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. 
And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three revelations. A revelation for your heart. Uh, a revelation about who the Lord is, and then a revelation about the mediator that we need. First of all, the revelation for our heart. The setting here, you know it if you've been reading through Scripture with us. They're in the wilderness. They've been brought out of Egypt. And now Moses goes up to the mountain, and scholars believe he's up there for about six weeks. And during those six-week periods, they decide that they need to make idols They need to have something graven that they can worship. And as John Calvin says, and I've quoted this to you many times before, the hearts, all of our hearts are factory idols. We make idols like a factory would make idols all the time. We're always churning idols out of our hearts, and we cherish a kingdom in our breast. They was delayed for a little while, and if you see in the text, they say, we don't know what has become of them. We don't know if he died up there. Uh, We don't know if he's coming back. You know, last time he went up to the mountain, he brought these Ten Commandments. We don't know if he's going to come down with 20 commandments this time. We have no idea what's become of this guy. So let's make an idol and something to worship right here. They couldn't wait. And they wanted to avoid waiting. So here's what we want to talk about just a little bit in this first point. How does your heart produce idols If our hearts are little factories that continually make idols, what's the assembly line? How does it get put together? And the first thing we see is this. Our hearts start to make idols when we're trying to avoid something. They were avoiding waiting. But think through this with me. If you want to avoid your home, you're going to become a workaholic. If you want to avoid boredom, you're going to have an entertainment idol. If, if you have an idol of sex, you're avoiding intimacy, true lifelong intimacy with somebody. There's all kinds of things that create in our hearts once we're trying to avoid some pain or some other things. So as we kind of walk through the idols in your heart and the idols in this text, I want you to think about whatever idol you have, what does it mean that you're trying to actually avoid? That's the first kind of sub-point. Here's the second thing. Look at verse 2 and 3. Idols are formed with the good things God gives us. This is not just a, a sinful thing that they're involved with. Idols are formed with the good things God gives us. So they go to all the people. How do they form this golden calf? How do they have gold anyway? Have you thought about that? They're on like this one like year-long hiking trip. How do they even have gold? Because way back uh, when they were leaving Egypt, they went to the Egyptians, this is chapter 11, verse 2, and they said, "You, we've been your slaves for a long time, so give us some of your gold to make up for it. Uh, Repair, give us some reparations to make up for us being in slavery to you. And the Egyptians did. They gave them all of this gold. And so the sons, apparently, and the daughters and the wives all had these earrings of gold. And so they went around and they collected all of that gold. The good things that God had given them, to give them actually some commodity training when they ended up in the in, uh, the new land, The good things that God had given to them, that is what they used to make the idol. And so the good things that God gives us, if it becomes the ultimate thing, will become an idol in your life. Your family, which is a good thing, can become an idol. Your marriage, which is a good thing, can become an idol. 
uh, your church, your gifts, your abilities, uh, your wealth, uh, anything can become an idol if it becomes the ultimate thing. Tim Keller, uh, more than anybody, has fleshed this out for us in the 20th century, and he said, idols are basically things where we say life only has meaning or value if I have this. And if I lose this thing, I will struggle. He outlines 20 of them. I'm not going to give you all 20, but let me pick a few of us, few of them for us. He says, if I have power or influence over others, that's an idol of power. If I have this kind of pleasure or a particular quality of life, it's an idol of comfort. In other words, I have to have this to have joy. And if I don't have this, I don't have joy. If I have someone who is dependent upon me, I have an idol of helping or a dependency idol. So somebody always has to be needing me somewhere. And if I don't have anybody that needs me, I can't really function. I don't know what to do. If I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and excelling in my work, I have an achievement idol. If I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in everything that the religion sets out, I have a religion idol. If my children or my parents are happy or they're happy with me, I have a family idol. If I'm hurting in a problem, only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with it. Then I have an idol of suffering. You've met those people who are only happy when they're miserable, right? They, have a, they don't know names. Don't look to your right or the left. But we know those people. They have an idol of suffering. They, they must always be in some kind of crisis. And they make sure everybody knows the crisis that they're in because the attention has to be on them. That's their idol. So we have to learn to recognize what the idols are created in our hearts. What good things in our lives have we made ultimate things? Tim Keller says it this way. He says, idols control us since we feel we must have them or life is meaningless. And whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our lives. So we need to recognize what our idols are. Now let me just stop. Um, I wasn't planning to do this, but when I was reading that quote, I thought I should. Let me stop and just give you 10 seconds to process what we've, where we are already. What are the functional idols in your life? What good things have become ultimate things? What things in your life do you think, I have to have this or I can't be happy? We have to do that hard work because some of us, by the end of this sermon, will need to repent like I've had to do this week. Idols, let me go on, verse 1 and verse 4. Idols are formed in this assembly line when we falsely attribute things to them that God is responsible for. Look at verse 1. Up make us gods from who shall go before us. Uh, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what's become of him. So we're going to make gods who have gone before us. And look again at verse 4. After they make this golden calf, they say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They attribute to the idols something that God himself has done. 
and how quick we are in our hearts, if we're honest, that when something good happens in our life, we think we did it. And when something difficult is in our life, we immediately think God did it and we blame him. (laughs) We immediately attribute false motives to God and don't give him credit. And out came this golden calf and they worshiped it. So much we could talk about here, but that golden calf was actually uh, homage to the Egyptian God that they had just been a part of. And then verse 5 and verse 6, they start to uh, allow that idol to form us. Remember Psalm 115 uh, that we read earlier in this worship service? Those who form these idols will become like these idols. Well, here, these idols are starting to form them, and so they have this feast. They rose up early. They make these burnt offerings. Now they're worshiping, and then look at the very end of this text. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, in the Hebrew, that's a, a better translation is revelry, which actually has a, a sexual connotation which means they probably went back to some of the prostitution temple rites that they were experiencing way back in Egypt. And all of a sudden, they've completely lost the plot. They've completely forgot what's going on. I read the story of Captain Cook um, about a year ago. just haven't used it up until now. Not Captain Hook. Captain Cook, who was a real person, Captain Cook, a British explorer who went to the Hawaiian Islands. And uh, once he was there, the women, they thought that the British explorers were gods and that they had to placate them. So the women of the Hawaiian Islands started sleeping with the sailors. And all the protocol broke down. Matter of fact, they started taking the women onto the ship with them. But then the women wanted something to show for their achievement, and so the sailors would give them something. But they liked metal things, and they liked shiny things. And most women do like shiny things, so that makes complete sense. But they would take the uh, nails from the ship, they would pry the nails, and they would give it to the women, and women would take it home, and they would have status now, newfound status in the community. So the men, the British sailors, were allowing themselves to be worshipped. They had this idol. They were allowing themselves to become an idol. And the women idolized them, and they idolized the women. They started to give away the nautical instruments of the ship. Finally, Captain Cook said, this has gone way too far. He set sail to get out of that scenario because everything was breaking down, all the protocol. They got out to the sea, and they realized too much was missing from the boat, and it wasn't seaworthy. Too many instruments were gone. And so they had to turn around and come back to the islands to beg for the nautical instruments and all their nails and everything they needed for the boat. And when they got back, they killed Captain Cook. Because if you're a true God, you never return again. And so when he showed back up, they said, you must not be a true God. Let's go ahead and kill you because you've taken advantage of us. And some of the British soldiers killed some of the Hawaiians. Both of them involved with idolatry and all the consequences that come with that. And the point is this. The idols that you have are not playful little toys. They're not little poly pockets as we experienced up here during the baptism. They're not little things that you can just cherish. They will kill you. And at the end of this chapter, we do see that. We see that there's this plague that goes through. And then we see the revelation of God. 
Look at what happens here. God says to Moses, Moses doesn't, verse 7, Moses doesn't know what's happening, but God says to Moses, go down for your people who brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves, and they've turned aside quickly from the way that I have commanded them. And they've made for themselves this golden calf, and they've worshipped it, and they've sacrificed to it. So here we actually see the heart of God, how long-suffering he's been with these people. Now, if you have your Bible... Turn all the way back, and you can do this on your device. Uh, I just I like paper, but turn all the way back to chapter 15. Because I want you to see, as I flip through this, you're just going to flip with me. It's good to do this in Scripture sometimes. You're going to flip with me, and I want you to see how long-suffering God has been. In chapter 15, we see the song of Moses, that he has been freed from slavery. In chapter 16, he gives them manna and quail. He gives them all of these things that they need to provide for them. In chapter 17, he gives them water in the middle of the desert, and he defeats the Amalekites. In chapter 18, they set up kind of a government. In chapter 19, he gives them law and instruction. In chapter 20, he gives them the Ten Commandments. And look at how the Ten Commandments start. God spoke these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The same words that they attribute to the God. These are the gods that brought us out of the land of Egypt. And then the first two commands, don't have any other gods before you. And don't make an idol to worship. And that's the exact same thing they do. And then chapter 20, he gives them a way to worship. Chapter 21 and 22, he talks about social justice and reparations, and he talks about slaves, and he talks about caring for those in your community and the sojourners. Chapter 23 goes on through that. Chapter 24 and 25, he gives them a way to worship. And then he moves from the law of the Ten Commandments to signs of love. The Ark of the Covenant, the golden lampstands, the tabernacle, a way to meet with God, the priestly garments, a way to come to him, a way to worship him. All of these things God are doing. And then in the small six-week period when we hit chapter 32, everything falls apart. And so God's angry. Look at verse 9 as well as he should be. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen these people. They're stiff-necked. I've been with them this whole time. I've provided everything that they've needed. And then in a second, they're willing to turn away from me. You know the feeling? I do. I know the feeling of having a God who's faithful and kind and always has been. In a moment's notice with a little temptation, I throw it out the window. Believe that he doesn't have my best interest in mind. Start to doubt his goodness. Struggle with him, wondering why he doesn't love me the way I want to be loved. Go on to whatever you want to. Involve with some sin, with, with gossip, with some lust, with some envy. Not trusting that his way is the best way. So, of course, God should be angry. And it says at the end of this, and we'll get to this, that he relented. So, theologically, does God change his mind? Numbers chapter 23, God is not man that he should lie, nor is he a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and did not act, in other words? So does God have the ability to change his mind? Because it looks like he relented here. And we see in Jonah chapter 3 that he did relent once he saw the people repent, and he didn't pour out his wrath on Nineveh. But we also see Numbers 23 that he it says he doesn't seem to change his mind. So does he relent? Does God have the ability to repent here? But maybe we should look at this paragraph differently. 
Maybe what God is doing is ministering to Moses. Maybe he's saying to Moses, who's also going to struggle with the apathy and the grumbling nature of the Israelites. Maybe he's saying to Moses in this moment, do you see how easy it would be for me just to give the whole thing up, Moses? Because you're going to be tempted to do that. Do you see how right I am to be a God of wrath, even though I'm not going to do that? Don't you see that I have every right, Moses, to have my anger spew out ever everything I've done? Maybe he's ministering to Moses to help Moses see his perspective. And the reason why I believe that's true is because of verse 7. The Lord says to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now, all the way through the scripture, he's always said, my people, you are my people, I'm bringing you out. Now he's helping Moses see, look at your people. I know you're going to be frustrated with them. Now you know a little bit of what it's like to be me, a God who loves unconditionally and faithfully and continually have my people, your people, turn their back. And so there's a revelation here for a mediator. Last point, number three, that Moses now mediates between two. He stands between the people who are in revelry on the bottom of the mountain and between the Lord who's in heavens and the earth. And he stands in that mountain, and he's this mediator between both of them. And look at what he does. Verse 12, he says, first of all, Let's prove to the people that are watching that you're a true God. Verse 12, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, relent from this disaster against your people, and remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants. He appeals to God's character. God, remember what you have promised Remember that you promised that you would get us home. Remember you promised you were going to be faithful. He appeals to the character of God. That's what a mediator does. Don't let Egypt win, but remember your promise. In my journey group, every time I have a men's group, uh, we'll do XY access. Uh, we'll do on this access when you feel the, when have you in your life felt the closest to the Lord and then the y-axis being time and chart it out like a graph chart out when you felt closest and when you felt furthest from the lord i've been doing that for 25 years i've never had one guy in the history of doing that put it like that it's always up down up and down my personal graph actually splits at one point into two and it goes back together everybody's going to feel distant and far from the Lord. But if on the X and Y axis you had to plot out God's faithfulness to his promises, there would be one line across the top. And that's your hope. If you're struggling in the faith, or if you're struggling with believing God is true, or if you're struggling with making sense of it all, or if you're struggling with your own sin, your hope is not in your ability or moralism. Your hope is in that line of God being faithful to his promises is never up or down. He always keeps his promises, and he always will. And so the mediator, Moses, goes to God and says, please remind yourself so that you can remind us that you're always a God who's faithful to your promises. And we need a mediator, don't we? Moses is a prototype of what Christ is going to do. And 
let me go back to the question. Did God relent? Did he turn from his anger? The answer is this, yes and no. He turned from his anger poured out on the people. But when you look at the cross, he didn't relent. He poured out his anger and his wrath on Christ. He just delayed for a while until he had to find the substitutionary atonement, the true mediator. And so now that we have this, we have, as it says in Hebrews 8, this mediator of Christ who watches us play in our revelry, who watches us forget him, who watches us turn our backs on him, who watches us create idols weekly in our hearts. We have this mediator, Christ, this priest, who says, God, remember my sacrifice. Remember that what I've done is sufficient. As it says in Hebrews chapter 8, now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices that's necessary for the priest to offer something. And Christ offered himself. But wait, there's more. Once Christ offers himself as the sacrifice, this mediator, it makes us priests. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you're a chosen race. This is speaking of you. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So now, friends, our lives... As we see Moses, as we see we have a mediator, our lives now become priestly in their nature. We now become the priests that stand between a God who we know and the people that are involved with revelry, not in an arrogant or a prideful way, but to tell the people there is a God. There is a person out there who loves you and knows you, who knows all of the things that you've done and still cares for you. There is a God who will always be faithful to your promises, promises, and you only have to follow him and believe in this mediator, Christ. That's what we are. Charles Taylor, uh, the brilliant uh, Canadian philosopher who I've studied for years, Charles Taylor says, the, the trick of what's happening in this century of ours is this. We've taken the transcendent out, and we've been left with just the things of this earth, and we've convinced ourselves that we can somehow have meaning in this life without an understanding of the transcendent. It can be summarized in a painting. Uh, El Greco, 1614, made this phenomenal painting. It's called The Vision of St. John, and it's based on Revelation chapter 5, where the mediator opens the scrolls, and you can see all the heavens in the earth, in this painting, all the heavens in the earth, and St. John worshiping as the fifth scroll is open, and all of this beautiful picture. But then a few years later, when somebody wanted to improve the painting, they uh, trimmed it. But they trimmed off. It's a huge painting. You can see it in the Met. It's phenomenal if you go there. But they trimmed off the transcendent. 
So you only see the imminent. I think we have a picture of it. I don't know if it's up there or not, but you can look it up. So now you can only see the imminent. You can only see that part. And our job as Christians, as priests, is to say there's something in the picture that's not in this picture. There's something that we need to be worshiping. There's a person named Christ that we need to be following. we got to show a bigger picture. And we're the priests that do that. Because as it says in Revelation chapter 5, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you are slain and your blood and your ransomed people from every language, tribe, and nation have made a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, I want to I close with this. As uh, Jack Miller often said, Be of good cheer. You're far worse off than you ever imagined. You're going to make so many, all of your life and all of my life is going to be constantly repenting of the idols. Finding them, recognizing them, taking them off the hill, and reestablishing God at the center as the ultimate. Jack Miller, be of good cheer. You're far worse off than you ever uh, could imagine. And you're also more loved than you could ever be imagined. And I don't know, I've been in four PCA churches this last week and a half. I'm not sure PCA people really get that, if I'm honest. That God really, really, really loves you. And I think that I said this maybe two weeks ago, but it's worth repeating. I, don't, I can't remember if I said it here or somewhere else. Everything's merging together. But if God had an iPhone, your picture would be the screensaver. And for you boomers... If God had a wallet, (laughs) your picture would be in it. God really does love you, and he will be always faithful to his promises. And now he makes you a priest called out of the darkness so that you can go into this world and say, there is a God out there. There's more to the picture than the picture we see. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would um, help us to repent from what we see in our hearts. Help us to love what we see about your heart. And help us to cry out to our mediator Christ, our great high priest in heaven who intercedes for us. May we live a life with him, not just for him. May we not be concerned about getting to a destination, but remember that he's the shepherd who walks with us. So whatever we have before us this week, we commit it to you, we offer it to you. We pray, Father, that we would follow you to love and to worship and cherish you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.